0: Well, today we get to the main body of the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at the very first judge, Otniel. And so, surprisingly or not, the sermon's entitled, Otniel, the first judge. Uh, Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Five very short verses for... The servant of the Lord, who is raised up and serves as a model for all the judges to come. Five short verses. But they tell us a lot. Now, just to recap what we've gone through. um, And it's funny, you know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the sermon. There's really two types of people in the world. There are those who, when they open a book, they'll read the preface the prologue and the introduction. And there are those that will go just immediately to the main story and start reading. The first type is a person who wants to know why the author wrote the book. What is the book about? What motivated him? Who are the people or things that influenced him to write the book? And the second person just wants to get to the meat of it. Well, if you're the first type of person, then you've appreciated the two prologues that we've, that we've gone through, which take up the first three, or the first two, and part of the third chapter in Judges that deal with um, the social unraveling in Israel and the religious deterioration that went on. If you're the second type of person, well, then you should be very happy because we're getting into the story now. We're done with, with uh, the prologue. So. Moving on here. If you have not already, please open your Bibles to the third chapter of Judges, Judges chapter 3, and I will be reading verses 7 through 11. Judges 3 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of cushan Rishatim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served cushan Rishatim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a, delivery for, a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Atniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Atniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So that's it. Five verses. Like I said, the deal with the model the exemplar for the judges of Israel for the next 200 years or so. There's one thing I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed too, in biblical writing, (laughs) that the details seem sparse to us, to our modern Western minds. It doesn't tell us what we're used to being told in modern writings. And we see in this and other biblical accounts, then ancient writings are not concerned with what modern authors would call scene setting. Ancient writers are not attempting to engage all of the reader's senses. Into a modern reader, the lack of the use of adjectives is something that just strikes one as odd. These are all the things that those who teach creative writing want aspiring fiction authors today to do? Well, of course, we're not dealing with fiction. We're dealing with a historical account. But in our day and age, even historians who are writing for a popular or general audience are told to write like this. Write like you're writing a novel to engage people. People just don't want dry facts. But the Bible's different. It's an ancient writing. But there's an awful lot of information contained in this relatively short bit of writing. And we're going we're to see this. There's important information also in what we are not told. In this lack of detail, what we're not told about Atniel points to the Lord God. That's the focus of this account of the very first judge, is what the Lord God has done. Not so much what this man has done. That's a lesson for us right there. And what did he do? Why did he have to do what he did? Well, verse 7, it tells us, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Now, if you recall, in our journey so far through Judges, this is the second time that we've been told this. First time was in chapter 2, verse 11, that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, we can see this is an ongoing and continual problem for the Israelites. We might say that this is the besetting sin of the Israelites. In other words, it's a sin that clings close to them and entangles them. And this pronouncement, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, I think is so horrible in its implications that to call it a besetting sin almost seems to trivialize it to our modern Western view because we can easily, and I think we do, we trivialize sin. I'm speaking of us individually here or even in this church but I think if we think of the Christian church at large, and especially the world at large, sin is trivialized. We make excuses for it. Because we so easily trivialize sin, we can speak of besetting sin as those niggling little proclivities that we have that we know are sinful but brush aside as something that God will help us deal with later to a lot of people it's like eh, that's, how, that's how it gets uh, you know that's how it gets dumbed down if you will but we should never think of sin as trivial each and every sin involves disobedience to God and each and every sin is fatal Each and every sin is revealed to us by God's word of the law. And each and every sin can only be atoned for by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this thing, this this besetting sin that Israel continually engaged in, also, we are told, is a judgment from God. Recall back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the angel of the Lord came to Israel and told them, there, speaking of the Canaanites, their God shall be a snare to you. So because of Israel's disobedience, because of their covenant breaking, the angel of the Lord said, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars earlier. This is what the Lord told them. They disobeyed those orders, those commandments. And in response to what the angel of the Lord told them, the Israelites lifted up their voices and wept. Yet subsequently, we read later in chapter 2, and now again in chapter 3, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet they had wept over this. But they're back to it. And I'll give you a foretaste of what's to come in the book of Judges. Many of you already know this. We're going to be reading this phrase frequently as we work through the book. This is something Israel is going to go back to and back to and back to. And I think we need to take care that we not become inured to it. That is, become accustomed to those things that are undesirable or bad. And it's easy for us to kind of harden our hearts in this way. But the Israelites, they did evil, is what the the Bible tells us. So they did. It's their actions. The Israelites engaged in actions. There's intentionality there that we should see. It wasn't an unintentional sin. And what they did in Hebrew was ra, ra, evil, which is not good. It is wicked. It is contemptible. In the sight of the Lord. Now think about that. What they did was observable. It tells us God watches, God sees what they do. But there's also a judgment, or in our sense, in a human sense, an opinion here. God judging, evaluating, weighing what they did. In His sight, it was ra, it was evil. And in the second part of verse 7, we read, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the Israelites, just to make it clear, they did not lose some previously possessed intellectual knowledge of the supreme being Yahweh, the Lord God. It's not like forgetting your freshman algebra. Where I haven't used it for so long, I don't even remember what it was. No, it's not an intellectual thing. It's not a matter of them needing a refresher course in covenant obedience. Rather, what this speaks of is apostasy, a turning away from God, a deliberate action, very deliberate. Not like, oh, you're not going to believe this, but we've forgotten about the Lord God. No, they intended to do this. And Why? This was a conscious choice made intellectually and acted out physically to disregard their covenant relationship with the Lord God and enter into a relationship with the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites. Israelites made a decision. They chose the lesser inferior fertility deities over the one true God, the creator of all things. This is what they decided to do. The one true God who had revealed himself to them, who had rescued them out of bondage in Egypt and delivered them into the land that he had promised to them. How could such a thing happen? We we probably wonder at that. We ponder, how could that have happened? Well, this sin of the Israelites did not spontaneously erupt suddenly amongst all of them. It's not like a sudden outbreak. Like every sin, it started small in the hearts and the minds of individuals and was hidden, hidden at first in each sinner. And it grew out of greed. Out of envy, out of lust. See, the Israelites saw the Canaanites. They saw what the Canaanites had done with the land. The Israelites are coming into the land as nomads. They don't know how to settle and farm, they're pastoral people. They see these mighty walled cities, they see these crops. And these Canaanites know, obviously, how to do everything. They're rich, they're powerful. The Israelites feel weak. They're spread out. They've gone to their allotted territories. And all they know is how to herd sheep and livestock. And they see others who can do so much more. They envy them. They, they're greedy for what they have. They lust after their possessions. And we're told they lust after their women. They see the fertility rites, which are very wicked, consist of... Sexual abominations. They lust after that. As these sins grew in their hearts, it was manifested in their spoken words. Imagine them saying, look how well those people do. Look how much those people have. Look how beautiful and desirable those people are. So the sinner who expresses his or her sin in an unrepentant Manner encourages others to open the door of sin in their own thinking. Then others join in, expressing their sinful desires, and sin grows. Sin feeds upon sin. Without a gentle or maybe even a stern rebuke, if it's needed, from a loving brother or sister who has enough love in their heart to turn another away from their deadly sin it just grows and the verbal expressions of sin then eventually become physical actions of sin starting with a few people or perhaps even just one but it starts being acted out then it becomes a matter of it's okay, everyone's doing it which grows like a cancer until the sinners who are acting out their sin demand that their sin be celebrated by the others who are not yet acting out, they boast, Look how brave we are, not to be hemmed in by those stuffy old rules. And they expect others to say, Yes, yes, you're very brave. We honor you for your bravery. Until finally we reach a point, Israel reaches a point, us also. In what was forbidden and sinful becomes proclaimed as righteous in the sight of fallen man. But it is evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't matter what other men say, what other human beings, what other, what other sinners say about it. What matters is what the Lord God says. This brings us to the first point. Sin cannot be hidden from the Lord, and sin will not remain hidden from others for long. Both the Old and New Testament reveal this to us. It's a truth. It's a biblical truth. So Moses, when they're approaching the Promised Land, he tells the tribes which want to settle east of the Jordan River, if they do not fulfill their obligation, their covenant obligation to help in driving out the Canaanites from the land west of the Jordan. He tells them, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. And Luke, in the New Testament, in his third gospel, he records a time... When Jesus' ministry has grown so much that he's attracting crowds every place he goes. And with crowds comes the attention of those who are opposed to him, the religious leaders for the most part of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And Luke tells us in chapter 12, in the meantime, when so many thousands of, of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Imagine that crowd that big. How dangerous that was. But also imagine, it's not in the text, but imagine our Lord undoubtedly kept each and every person safe in that crushing, huge crowd. But I digress. Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up, That will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So sin traps us, we become ensnared. We're powerless to free ourselves. However, here's the blessing we are not abandoned to this fate. The Apostle John, in his first letter, he writes, If we confess our sins, Jesus, the Son of God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. However, John goes on to say in that epistle, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We need to be honest about our sin. We need to repent of our sin. And we obtain forgiveness. But back to Judges. Verse 8 of chapter 3 reads, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishetim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishetim eight Years. Second part of verse 8. He sold them into the hand of. Think about that. This tells us that the Israelites rightfully belonged to the Lord. The Lord had full title to them. Not in a sense of master and slave. No. That's the way the ancient Near East pagans saw their relationship with their gods. Their gods were their masters and they were slaves to the god were gods, which was true. But then also they felt they had the ability to call on the gods by doing certain things, kind of tricking them or giving them what they wanted and the gods would perform for them. So that's not what I'm speaking of. How the Lord had title to them. Because what what I'm speaking of is the Israelites entered into a covenant with the Lord. This is the big difference here. There's no covenants between any pagan people and a pagan deity in the ancient Near East. This is not something that anyone could say, oh, they, they just copied it from here or there, the Israelites. No, but there is such a thing as a covenant in the ancient Near East. And what we find a pattern of is the covenant goes, the Mosaic covenant goes along in format, in the way it's laid out, with what are known as suzerainty treaties or covenants. What this is, is a covenant or a treaty between a mighty king and lesser kings. The mighty king is the one who enters into the covenant, who suggests the covenant, who brings the vassal kings or king to him and says, this is what I am going to do for you. And you, in turn, shall do this for me and if you fail to do this for me, this is what I shall do to you. So, the covenant is between two kings. What this is telling us is that the Lord views his people as an extension of his reign on the earth. His people are not his slaves. His people are his under kings his governors over his creation that's why god gives his image bearers dominion and then there's this king that the lord god sells the israelites into the hands of kushan reshathaim king of mesopotamia well here's the interesting bit of information His name in Hebrew means Kushan the double wicked. And I read to you from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which calls him the king of Mesopotamia. In the Hebrew, and perhaps in your Bibles, um, depending on your translation, it does not say king of Mesopotamia. The ESV provides this translation for this Hebrew term, Aram Naharaim or Aram, double rivers. So we have kushan, time of Aram, naharim. This is, this is Hebrew wordplay going on. We have kushan, double wicked, from Aram, double rivers. So you've got a rhyming thing, which we don't often see in Hebrew wordplay, but it, it, it pans out this time. But there's a play on words here about this guy and where he's from. How bad does a ruler have to be? I ask you to be earned the name double wicked. I would imagine pretty bad because there's a lot of wicked guys around at this time, right? In the ancient Near East. And they're still around. We still have wicked guys around. But this guy is not just wicked. He's twice as bad as that. In Hebrew thought, he is wicked in his wickedness. If this brings to your mind... Satan, the adversary, then congratulations, you are picking up on clues that are not so subtle in the text, literary clues, that will help us understand what's going on here. And undoubtedly, this petty tyrant, Kushan the double wicked, who is unknown in ancient records, there's no record of him in Syria or Mesopotamia, any any place other than in the biblical text. Undoubtedly, he thought of himself as quite powerful and important. Maybe he bestowed that name upon himself just to impress people and scare them. For that's the way of tyrants. We've seen that through history. But this sole surviving record of his existence, Judges chapter 3, reveals him to be a very minor vassal to the sovereign of the cosmos. And notice, God does use... Kushan double wicked. Kushan double wicked does serve the purpose of the Lord God, according to the text of Judges. In the last section of verse 8, it says the people of Israel served Kushan Rishatim eight years. Eight years. But the people of Israel did not want to serve Yahweh. So the Lord God, Yahweh, granted them their desire. And I hazard to be so bold as to guess that the Israelites did not picture the freedom from Yahweh that they desired as including eight years of serving Kushan of the double wickedness. Probably had no idea that was coming. And as I was preparing the sermon and thinking about this, I kind of flash back to something from the 70s, which to me wasn't that long ago. To some of you, it's like the 70s. And I thought about it. It's like 50 years ago. Man, I can remember stuff 50 years ago like it was yesterday. I don't remember what Karen served for dinner last night, but 50 years ago, I'm there. There was a singer-songwriter, very popular. In fact, he was called the poet of the 60s. And then in the 70s, something happened. This guy's name, you may have heard of him, is Bob Dylan. Something happened to him. And he proclaimed that he had been saved by Jesus Christ, that he was a Christian. He was a follower of the Lord. Now, I don't know if Dylan was sincere in his faith, if he's still a follower, if, was just, if he was a false professor for a time. But he wrote this song in the 70s that I remember. And it was, you've got to serve somebody. And, the, and part of the lyrics is, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. At that point in time, when Bob Dylan proclaimed that in his music, in his poetry, whether he was a false professor or not, the Lord used him as his servant. He proclaimed a biblical truth. And really, that's just fascinating. And like I said, I don't know what happened to Dylan, but he spoke biblical truth there and like another character of the 70s a tv show used to like would say and you can take that to the bank and if anyone remembers that come see me afterwards and i'm going to you know give you a prize for uh, being a trivia champion so think about this eight years they served kushan the double wicked let me translate that culturally That's two presidential terms under the administration of President Double Wicked, with no checks and balances from the legislative or judicial branches of government. Can we imagine? Unfortunately, maybe yes. My second point is, tyrants, as well as good rulers, reign only as long as the Lord decrees. There's an excellent example of this from the 27th chapter of Jeremiah. And I borrow this illustration from uh, Dale Ralph Davies' commentary on judges. It was just outstanding. It's like, I I gotta use this because this was just so cool. So anyway, in the days of Jeremiah, the king of Judah, Zedekiah at the time, um, word went out to the kings, the five pagan kings around Judah, the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. The word went out, send to Jerusalem your special envoys. We must confer about a great and dire threat to world peace by a power-hungry maniac ruling a faraway country, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So these special envoys, they come to Jerusalem and they meet. And they confer, and they decide. They get a plan of action. And then they exit the Great Hall, and they meet what would have been the press in those days on the steps of the Great Hall. And we've seen this played out on our news channels time and time again. These powerful men and women who are running governments come out, looking very stern, looking very concerned. It's a grave, grave matter that they must control that they must find a solution to and they stand there and they and they get ready to speak and proclaim their wisdom for everybody the king the special envoys, the reporters see this odd man come stumbling up with what looks like ox yoken ox yoke on his shoulders who is this strange creature Zedekiah knows, and Zedekiah's like, "Uh, here he is, wonderful. Why does he have to show up now? These prophets will be the death of me. Zedekiah opens his mouth, and he speaks the word of the Lord. It is Yahweh, the Lord God, speaking through Jeremiah. And he says, it is I, speaking of the Lord God, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth, with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar has what he has because it's been given to him by the Lord God, and the Lord God calls this pagan king his servant. And the Lord goes on, he says, I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Everything, in other words. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Note well what verse 7 said until the time of his own land comes. Yahweh may raise up a king or a kingdom to chastise his own people or other people, but when the time of his own land comes, when that kingdom must be brought down for its arrogance and oppression, as Babylon eventually was, that situation also applies to this obscure unknown ruler, Kushan, the double wicked. As well as to a mighty potentate like Nebuchadnezzar, who is immortalized in bronze and stone. This applies to all the rulers of the ancient Near East. As well as to those who rule today by various titles during our time. But us, the faithful people of God, may we join in with the psalmist David and declare but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Going on in Judges, verses 9 and 10, read, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them, Atnial, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishatim of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishatim. First part of verse 9, the people of Israel cried out. They cried out the Hebrew, zaak here. It's a cry of help. Frequently, yes, to Yahweh. It's a a deep distress. But it does not imply, it does not denote denote, um, repentance. No, not unless... It's, well, unless there's another cause attached to it. Another clause, I should say, that specifies it. It, it. It's not that Israel is repenting of their sin. They're crying out in pain and anguish. But here's what's interesting. Who do they cry out to? Yahweh, the Lord God. Although they are serving the Baals and the Asherah, it's not to them they cry out. In their distress, they cry out to the one true God. And I suggest to you that we see that today in the sinful fallen world that we're still in. People know in distress, they know in their hearts, that whatever their idol is in this world is not going to save them. They can only be saved by the true God, whom they may not even really know in the biblical sense. So Israel is suffering now but not repentant. Okay, so if they're not repentant, why did Yahweh raise up a deliverer for them? Think about that. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Because it tells us something about God. His mercy is not reactive to anything. God's actions are not dependent on what we do or what we don't do. Romans 9.15 echoes Exodus 33.39, where God proclaims, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is the Lord's decision and the Lord's decision alone. We cannot influence the Lord. We cannot cause him to do things like the pagans could with their false gods. No, that's not the way the sovereign God of the cosmos, operates. Second part of verse 9. We're told the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Atniel, the son of Canez, Caleb's younger brother. Well, in Hebrew means lion of God. Lion of God. The Lord raised him up means he established him, he set him up, set up this man. And to raise something up means, you know, whether it's a child, raising a child into a man, or raising a seed into a crop, it requires many things, such as thought and planning, feeding and nurturing. And if you think of this, and I think we should, you realize that God's actions, whether in this particular case or in any other, are not spur-of-the-moment reactive decisions to events. In other words, the Lord didn't make a deliverer appear out of thin air here. No, there was, there was planning, long range planning, that had to go into this. And this is the case in everything, everything in this world. And in this case, we have as the deliverer, <clears throat> excuse me, Atnial, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So think about this. Atniel is nurtured in the same ground, so to speak, as Caleb from the tribe of Judah, one of the great leaders of the earlier generation. And Atniel gains combat experience when Caleb incentivizes him to capture the city of Debir. We read this in chapter 1 of Judges. These sort of things, you can think of them as examples of what are called by philosophers and theologians as secondary causes. And although these things here, these examples of Ot are positive, this is an important concept, the secondary causes, when we deal with the problem of evil. And I just wanted to touch on that a moment. And maybe if you've struggled with this problem of evil, maybe this will illustrate secondary causes for you. As our Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 Chapter 3, paragraph 1. And it's in the back of our hymnal. Um, We're kind of pressed for time, so I don't have time to read it. But I I know most of you have read it. Refresh yourself. Refresh your memory and read it when you get a chance. If you've not read the Confession of Faith, you really must. But the, the confession holds that God is not the author of sin. Well, this is exactly right. The Bible tells us this. God is not the author of sin. Sin does not come from God. And God does not restrict the will of his creatures. But by the contingency of second causes, God works in disposing all things and accomplishing his decree. So the example is how Atniel was raised as a secondary cause of him becoming the deliverer. How he was raised, being around such a, a great and effective leader as Caleb, being given the opportunity to experience combat and lead in this attack against the city of Deber. These we could categorize as secondary causes to the main cause, which is him being the deliverer. So Atniel is raised up by Yahweh to deliver his people. He's raised up into a leadership position. But in order for him to lead, he must follow first. And followership is a difficult trait to cultivate, especially among these stubborn stiff-necked people of ancient Israel, or among modern self-centered people who think that their views are so important that they plaster them all over social media and their life is so important that they put photographs of the plate of food they just ordered at the restaurant on social media because everybody must know what I think and what I eat. It's very important. That's how important I am. In that sort of culture, followership is really a bad word. And that's what we're experiencing. Followership requires humility. Acknowledging that there are others that you can learn from. Even when a follower is raised up to a leadership position, he will still be a follower of a leader. He will still have someone over him. No matter how far you advance in any organization, you will always have a boss. You'll find that there's always someone you must report to, no matter how high you go. And followership is a big part of discipleship. Now, discipleship is a very important word in the Christian faith, is it not? It means being a learner. Actually, the great apostles of our faith, when you think about apostles, that that word is a Greek word who means those who were sent out. That implies followership, doesn't it? They were under orders. They were sent out. First and foremost, though, before they became apostles, they were disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they remained disciples all their days. They were learners Paul mentions twice that he's not just an apostle of Christ, but he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And also, this is what he mentions twice. He mentions he's a follower of Jesus Christ much more than twice. So excuse my stumbling there, my phrasing. But twice what he mentions is he's also a teacher. So leaders must be teachers also. And teaching was a major responsibility that Otnael had. In the second part of verse 2, chapter 3, we read there that the objective of the judges and why God created the circumstances Israel was in was, quote, to teach war to those who had not known it before. End quote. So it was the responsibility of the judges who were raised up to teach the skills needed for the Israelites to become an army. This idea of leadership, followership, discipleship, teaching, learning. We see this in the church. These are things that the church engages in, things that the church needs to engage in. Paul, in in many places in his letters, talks about the ability to teach being a necessary requirement in the church for the, those who are in eldership. We, that, means, that implies that we must learn. There's people that are teaching, and those that are teaching are still learning. You know, as I did various things through my life, I'm sure as, as, as many of you have experienced this, I thought, well, if I just get to this point, when I was a police officer, if I, if I just make sergeant, if I just get those three stripes, I'll know everything. When I was studying martial arts, if I just get my black belt, I'll know everything. When I was going to grad school, if I finish and get my master's degree, I'll know. And I found in each case, I did not know at the end. All it did was prepare me to learn more that I needed to know. And eventually it got to the point where what it's all about is to teach you how much you don't know. And then you begin to learn. So none of us stop learning. The Lord teaches us in the church and appoints various people to teach. And even those people, even the best teachers we have ever heard or ever read continued to learn from the Lord the rest of their life until they died. So remember I said Otna was the model judge. Why, Why is he the model judge? Notice, I don't know if you saw that or not, but I want to point it out. When I read the account of Atniel, those short five verses, he's not called a judge or shafat in Hebrew. He's called a deliverer, Moshe. What's deliverer mean? What does Moshe mean? It means rescuer. It means Savior. now displays three characteristics embodying the essence of a judge. This is why he's the model judge. First, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And the Spirit of God is the agent through which God's will is exercised, whether it be in creation, his dispensing of life, his guidance and providential care, the revelation of his will, the renewal of unregenerate hearts, or his sealing of his covenant people as his own. The Spirit of God, as we know, is not a self-existent agent operating independently, but the third member of the Trinity by which God exercises influence over the world. Now, in the book of Judges, when the Spirit of the Lord, or Rock, Yahweh, is spoken of, and remembering that the ancient Israelites were not Trinitarians, but we see the Spirit in their writings. When the book of Judges refers to the Spirit of the Lord, it signals the arresting presence and power of God, often through individuals who are unqualified for a role or indisposed to the certain service to God. And in the present instance of Otnael, The empowering presence of the Spirit of God transforms this minor Israelite officer from this town of Debir that he occupied into the deliverer of all Israel and the conqueror of a powerful enemy. So notice how I described how the Spirit of God operates in ancient Israel. Even though the ancient Jews weren't Trinitarian, we are seeing the person of the Holy Spirit working It is Trinitarian in the text, even though not revealed clearly to the Jews by God at that time. The second reason why Otnael is a model is he went out to war. That was the reason God raised up these judges, so that those who did not know war might learn war. And this was necessary in order to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Even in the New Testament, our spiritual battles are are described in military terms, although we do not fight with physical arms nowadays. We fight with spiritual weapons. That the idea is the same. We have had people come to us and teach us how to engage spiritually. Thirdly, Atnael's hand prevailed over Kushan Rishatheim, so the land had rest 40 years. That's a biblical generation they had rest. And rest does not mean that they had the day off. Rest means that they were given stability, security, and safety for 40 years. And then, Otniel, the son of Kinez, died. And we'll see what happens after that next week. But this brings us to our third and last point. The Lord God is a saving God. The Lord God raised up a deliverer, a savior, named Atniel, the Lion of God, to rescue his people from Kushan of double wickedness. So Judges, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 What is it telling us? It's telling us about a lion from the tribe of Judah who saves his people by overthrowing the evil one who held them captive because of their sin. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that marvelous? I think it is. What is God saying? Is he trying to say something here? I think God is. I I really think he's telling us something. This is more than just a history lesson about ancient Israel. I think the ancient Jewish scribes were right when they included this book and others in amongst the prophets rather than just a historical book. This isn't just history. This is foretelling something completely marvelous. God is declaring that the eschatological lion of Judah was coming. In Revelation 5.5, John writes, And one one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Luke tells us that one day, Jesus of Nazareth stood up in his hometown synagogue, and opening the scroll, he read from the prophecy of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me and sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Luke also tells us that when accused by his enemies of using power from the devil to cast out demons, Jesus said, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, when, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That strong man, fully armed, guarding his own palace that Jesus refers to is, of course, Satan. And the one stronger than he is, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus has stormed. The fortress of the devil, he's kicked in the door, knocked the devil off his feet, disarmed him, and plundered Satan's treasures. Satan's treasures. That's us, brethren. Our Lord and God rescued us. We must never forget that. Even after years of being a Christian, it it makes me weep to think that I am loved that much. And this passage reminds me, when I was a SWAT sergeant, hostage rescues, when we kick in the door, we kick in doors and go in against bad guys, heavily armed, and take them down, knock them off their feet, and rescue innocent people. But our Lord Jesus does it to such an extent that anything mortal man does just pales by comparison. We may rescue for a time those who are in physical peril, but only Jesus can rescue us eternally from the fires of hell, from the plots and the snares of Satan who would have us as his prey. The kingdom of God is with us, even now and not yet. Brethren, rejoice, for we have been saved. Join me in prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, I don't know how to express the gratitude that I and my brothers and sisters have for what you've done for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freshness it brings to our minds and to our hearts of what you have done for us of where we now stand in your sight, the freedom that we have been given, not earned. We do not deserve it, Father. We acknowledge that. We praise you. We can't praise you enough, Father. It's wonderful when we lift our voices and our hearts and sing the words of the hymns together. As brothers and sisters, as a family in Christ, we sing of our salvation We sing in praise of you, of your majesty, your glory, your goodness, and your mercy. Father, bless this day. Bless my brothers and sisters as they go out, that we may remain mindful of you until this day ends, and that we may be mindful of you in our week ahead until we can gather again. We ask for your blessings. We praise you. We honor. We extol you. We glorify you in all things, Father, in the name of of Jesus Christ, amen.